Coming up today, we discuss USA full member ambitions, the ICC chair race, and news around the world. But first, a shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 US a month as a patron, you can access bonus content at Emerging Cricket and have a say on the show's direction. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket. Another cracking show this week. Let's go. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me around the Emerging Cricket table, I'm joined by the rest of the podcast crew. First to our media personality, Tim Cutler. Tim, how's things? You did say you were going to say that beforehand. I'd hope you were joking, <laughs> but um, oh, look, I've had better weeks, but uh, onward and upward as they say. That's it. Uh, how about you, sir? You sound a bit blocked up. I am a little bit clogged up. Uh, just a bit of a head cold. We're all good. COVID-free once again. Um, and yeah, I'll delegate a lot of the talking to you guys, hopefully tonight, just to make sure that everyone sticks around and listens to the entirety of the podcast and before I get too annoying. So I do apologize in advance. Of course, we wouldn't be complete without Nick Skinner, better known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter. Nick, how are you? I'm very well. I'm uh, up in Ballina on the New South Wales Northern Rivers area. Put in some of the show notes uh, sitting on the beach on a bit of driftwood for a chair. So that was nice. Lovely part of the world. Can't say I've frequented it uh, recently. Not far away from Tim, actually, all the way up there. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. I was thinking that. But, um, of course, I'm not allowed into Queensland. So uh, I'm still I'm st- stuck on this side of the border. Yeah, I think the bubble may have extended towards that, but that... I think it sounds like you're too close to Byron Bay and what would Zach Efron do with all those Queenslanders coming down? <laughs> so, yes, it is not far from me. You were definitely closer to me than you were. Decent old drive for you. That would have been a good sort of, uh, what, eight hours or whatnot north. So uh, Yeah, about that, yeah. You and Brooklyn definitely must like each other, so that's a plus. <laughs> well, yes, we do. <laughs> we do. She's, she's up here for a um, an art show. Uh, yeah, dropped off the artwork uh, earlier in the week and uh, have been having a holiday since then. So that's nice. Lovely, lovely. Um, look, this is the uh, Emerging Cricket Variety Hour <laughs> and I'm your host, Tim Cutler, and uh, Daniel Beswick is my guest. He won't be doing much talking because he's sick, but... Uh, Good. That was Nick and... <laughs> is, that, is that okay, Daniel? Go for is it. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I felt... When I listened back after our chat last week and I heard two kind of ads from us, I thought it actually did sound like we were selling cold brew coffee. Um, <laughs> well, if any cold brew coffee manufacturers are um, interested, I'm happy to be doing ads for them on the podcast. Look, I'm, I'm, we're happy to take gifts. Yeah, um, just just pay some coffee beans, honestly. Yep. Pay, that should be a patron option. Um, <laughs> so, Daniel, why don't you tell me what you think about the USA's new strategy because uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. You read it cover to cover. Yes, all 16 pages of it. Uh, yes, for anyone who isn't aware, the USA launched their foundational plan from 2020 to 2030. So, so you still want to host, basically, is what you're telling me. The, the idea is that I ask the questions and the answers that you guys provide oh, okay. is, you know, is most of the show today. But no, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk and wax lyrical about associate cricket every week. Rain, hail or shine. Sick or healthy, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, I thought that was my big chance there. Yeah, don't get too uppity. <laughs> Again, like Nish last week, if 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 you keen if you keen on asking the questions down the track, I'm all for it. But 
Yes, the USA have launched their foundational plan for 2020, uh, aiming for full membership, uh, a bold strategy by 2030, five key objectives, growing engagement, increasing participation levels, improving performance of national teams, operating sustainably and building trust across the local community. There are so many different tangents we can go with this, but for me, it looks as if the USA have always been ambitious in what they've wanted to do with cricket. And, you know, we could probably argue that the resources are there as well, especially at this point in time. Uh, the USA are a little bit different in that they, they've had to sort of work a lot of the time from the top down, from the national team and from the organization all the way down and trickle down to the club level, whereas a lot of other countries have started with all of the clubs and building upwards. So, Nick, I want to bring you in first and, and ask you about this situation. Looking at it, how viable do you think a lot of this stuff can be? Um, gee, well, I mean, I don't want to be too negative on them because uh, you know, I'd, I'd very much like for them to succeed um, as much as it, it sort of pains me to say that as a Canadian fan. But the difficulty is we've sort of seen this all before. There's a lot of these um, targets um, are, are sort of recycled from the 2015 Project USA document, which was... Uh, I think that was when the ICC was starting to get involved and, and try and hold their hand and put them back on the straight and narrow. And that document had them qualifying for the men's, women's and under-19s Cricket World Cups in, in 2020, none of which obviously happened. <laughs> so, yeah, it's sort of a bit of deja vu. I think the US as as a whole is is one of these places where, the, you know, it's the bright lights and the glittering of the dollar signs that all these administrators see and they, they see the revenue that comes out of the US for, for ICC events and they look at that and the participation numbers and you know thousands of clubs and, and tens of thousands of players and that's all fine. But the problem is, as we've discussed in the past, most of these people in the US who like cricket are not very interested in US cricket. And in fact, some a lot of them don't even know that there is a U.S. cricket team. So, you know, bringing those people on board, or even expecting them to to get on board, that's a lot more of a challenge. And and so they they sort of talk about it a little bit with fan engagement, and then you know some of this stuff about bringing clubs on board and, and building trust. But I'm just I'm not convinced. You know, there's been a lot of failed attempts in the past, uh, and so building trust is going to be difficult when. You know, a lot of these people, if they're even aware of the USA board, they're aware of the fact that they've sort of made a lot of these promises before. So, you know, wait and see, I guess. The difference being now we have a board endorsed, well, I guess USACA in the past were endorsed by the ICC in that, you know, at times they were members of the ICC <laughs> when, they when, they, when they weren't suspended. I'm just trying to get that straight in my head so it makes sense to everybody else. But now we have an, we have an IC member that was set up by the ICC. The CEO is the former ICC COO. And for the first time ever, they have a broadcast partnership deal for a T20 league that is actually looking like it's they're paying paying the money they're promised and grounds are being built etc um look we don't need to debate the merits of the the minor league exhibitions that have gone on i think you know they are what they what they were they were sort of thrown together and probably the production and whatnot wasn't to the to, to the levels that the investment in cricket uh, deserved but that's that's by the by i think the on one hand i think that the real struggle for usa cricket is it's going to be too centered around the minor and major leagues because that's where all the money is going into for the 
for the exposure and it's balancing that relationship with ACE. You know, we're already seeing um, strains there in the, the fan community asking who are picking the teams and are players going to be available for USA selection if they don't take part in certain exhibition games, um, etc. And it's and it's tough, you know, you talk about sort of following the money. The money is going after T20 cricket at the moment in, in the US. And for everything else they're talking about, there's a real danger of going down a, a route where they become more like an NBA, where it's just a, a single league and it's not actually a national governing body. But on the other hand, you've got some amazing people working there, like we said, the former COO of the the ICC, who should be well-versed in, in dealing with highly complex environments, as, as you outlined, Nick, with everything that, you know, USA itself um, and then the USA cricket community, you know, it's, I don't know if there's a 5D chess, but that's pretty <laughs> much it. Um, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the disparate nature of the, the US cricketing community, and you said yourself that there are people out there that don't even know the USA have a cricket team, or even worse, those that are out there and don't care because to them it doesn't re- represent them and their league. So it's pulling that community together under that, that common banner, and, and we've talked a, a lot about. I found it interesting um, that T20 cricket is the focus, and I know it's, I've seen a few people mention this, well, the, the lack of any mention of, of four-day cricket whatsoever, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing in looking to the future and what it, what it looks like. I think it's just more a question mark to say, you know, what cricketers are being developed if there's no potential whatsoever of long-format cricket if they want to be a full member. But it, it's, it's a hard one, really, isn't it? Because where, where do you start? There are so many things that need to be done, and they don't have a bottomless pit of money to be putting against all of these projects. So where are the priorities going to come to? And is it going to be about building a highly successful T20 league and trying to fund cricket that way and, and, and using that as a reason why by major league becomes a focus or are they really going to try and get that grassroots firing again by activating that volunteer army and going from the the bottom up that's called the the Daniel Weston mm. strategy of actually building local heroes and well I guess they're already local heroes but it's galvanizing that local cricket community which no administration in USA cricket's history has been able to do so I'll be a little bit more positive in you that you know I wish them all the luck because of firing you don't want them to do well because you don't want them to keep being beating your native Canada (laughs) and and to and to knock them out but I think we can all agree that a a firing USA would would change the landscape of, of global cricket and we've seen it written about already about what money coming out of America would do to shift the the power structures in global cricket. And if that saw more globalization, then great. Um, and then if the countries see America doing it, then um, a lot of other sporting nations have followed in their footsteps as well with certain leagues around the world in other sports. So look, I think you said it, Bez, it's ambitious. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it's a fat old document as well. If you're trying to read it and get a snapshot of what they're going to do, it's a tough one to get a snapshot because there are so many things happening. And I, and I fear for the amount of funding that's, got, that's going into the organization at the moment and the number of employees, i.e. not many, uh, how they're going to do it all. Um, because if you don't have paid staff, you have to really fire up a volunteer army and you only follow, fire a volunteer army, as they, as they talk about it there, is about um, growing their stature in that cricketing community. So that's going to take time and effort itself. So there are a lot of things they need to need to look at and it's it's going to be a huge challenge but i think we can only say that, that, that we wish them all the best 10 years is a long time in the context of international cricket and its governments and it'll be interesting to see eventually when we do get to 
2030 and we're all, you know, much, much older and hopefully still here talking about associate cricket, but maybe talking about a more associate teams uh, performing excellently in global competitions and more opportunities. But it'll be interesting to see in 2030 what full membership actually looks like. You know, there's already talk about the decoupling of of test matches and, and the idea of uh, full member status. So for the USA, again, a lot of their ambitions are in this 2020 to 2023 period. I, I think probably about 60% of their objectives are inside that first three years. So I think we'll actually know pretty soon how that's all going to go. But Tim, as you say, it's the it's the importance of galvanizing all that, that local cricket and, and the heroes that pop up in local cricket actually pushing the competition and the competitiveness of, of all the players higher up and into to higher honours because I think speaking to a couple of people involved and, and watching USA cricket either from afar or up close, there are a lot of big fish in small ponds in terms of players dominating local leagues. When we looked at it originally, the measuring our success and, and the six points, their first one being to grow engagement. I think for a lot of other countries, that would look a little bit odd because I think a lot of people would be more interested in just getting their people to participate in the game. But I think for the USA and their and their unique situation of, of having people from so many other cricketing countries moving to the USA and, and, and growing up in the USA and, and having children in the USA, they don't really look to the USA national team. They're looking to their to their old country as as the team that they support. So Hopefully, getting you know all those people keen on on a USA national team and unifying every single one there can be done. I, I know it's possible, and and you know there's more than enough people I think for it to happen. It's just a case of of just how they can, as you say, Tim, galvanize and, and unite everyone you know to to compete and ultimately push for the same goal. It's easy to say it. It's complex and it's it's going to be hard, but it's not going to work if they don't get communities engaged and, and yes it's where one of our contributors is from but you know look at morrisville and the way that they've been yeah. able to build a community around there getting let's call locals inverted commas again thanks everyone can't see me with the inverted commas <laughs> but really building a community around a, a great facility that can host international cricket and growing from there in terms of community engagement coaching uh, and development this is all happening independent of of usa cricket's Involvement. I mean, to the stretch that yeah, they're not out there putting putting staff into the schools. You know, you, I think back to the challenges that Hong Kong had of really finding it hard for people to recognise the sport, having space to play it, and not having many players. And the more players you got, there weren't enough grounds. But then I look at the we had staff that were we were able to directly control um, and train and get them to also recruit volunteers and teachers and, and go into the schools themselves. And USA Cricket, they don't have, you know, a thousand development staff out there going to schools across across 50 states. You know, they're having not hands-off, a real arm's length. It's a further than arm's length. It's a go-go gadget arm's <laughs> length to these, develop, these de- development activities. But these associate nations are sometimes getting the well let's say the same amount of money for, for argument's sake let's say that same million dollars that a country like hong kong would have been getting if they were in the the same league to what usa is getting you know how do you how do you spread that that money let alone the cost of living somewhere so the challenges are, are huge and you know they're going to, have to be finding income streams elsewhere and that's that's how those academies have all popped up around america because you know there's no national structure uh, running development so that's opened up 
the the chances for private academies to run but then trying to i won't say trying to nationalize you know that's the wrong perspective but trying to bring academies sort of into a into a structure that all feeds the same way and sometimes those academies are owned by your shareholder major shareholder in your, your, your t20 league and they become sort of quasi hubs for that you know it's a it's a complex situation i guess and it's all you know we're seeing a Microchasm, if that's the right word, of that in in Nepal, with Nepal coming back out from the suspension cold and having private academies and private leagues everywhere, you know how are they going to reintegrate into that cricketing system? But USA are even further down the line because they've gone decades with um, an administration that didn't have control because of the sheer scale of the country. And so, how to bring that all, all together into into a pyramid that kind of leads to the best teams representing America and, and a single community so you know i think we could probably talk about a lot that i think what they've tried to do is address all the challenges and come up with solutions that just hope that they they're able to to prioritize and 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 resource it because you know the opportunity is huge yeah and just to to finish up i I suppose the olympics case can't hurt if the the usa uh, recognizes cricket as part of its Olympic committee as well. So that's another thing to to keep track of. And just to finish up, just looking at, at some of the immediate goals for the USA over the next three years, the National Softball Tournament uh, publishing long-term international playing calendars, bidding uh, for future ICC events from 2024 to 2031. Uh, that's all in 2021 in the first half. And then looking at at things like uh, multiple major league venues, entry-level programs for, for school-level cricketers, increasing participation on the women's side of things, all leading up to the ultimate goal in 2030. So we'll be keeping a keen interest on that and following that progress as it unfolds. And looking to the ICC and the race for the chairman position, down to two once again, but not the two that we were potentially thinking it would be, Imran Khawaja against Greg Barkley of New Zealand. And looking at some of the press that has come out, a secret ballot and two-thirds majority will be the vote, will be good enough to take that role. Uh, looking at this, Colin Graves officially uh, ended his bid, uh, according to multiple sources, yesterday. Looking at these two, it's uh, Barclay versus Kwaja. Tim, who you got? Well, we've endorsed a candidate, so I think we should uh, probably stay with our, our horse here. But yeah, it's interesting that uh, we, you talk about, you know, quote unquote, you know, cricket press, the uh, the mouthpiece of um, of our largest member in world cricket has sort of put out a, a piece talking about the support behind each of the candidates referring to Barkley as the quote-unquote consensus candidate because he has the support of the ICC full members after already pointing out that Pakistan has hitched their wagon to Kawaja's candidacy. So, look, we, we do talk about um, administration and politics well, in terms of ICC politics, so I don't, don't think we should sort of stay on it too long, but apparently India, England and... Um, I was trying to think of that other country that was part of the big three there. Australia have this. Oh, are they, are they part of the. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember something about that, but uh, back New Zealand. Um, but it, it sounds like, you know, unnamed um, directors are backing, including the independent uh, women's director and Pakistan and the associate directors at least are all behind Kawaja. So, you know, already that sounds like to me New Zealand's. 
um, Greg Barkley, who incidentally is also the, the, the chairman of the International Rugby League, which, uh, which is an interesting point, which I'm sure we'll get to, is going to really struggle to have two-thirds of the votes. So I'm not, not sure what happens if there's an impasse and neither candidate has has enough votes and does it all you know what 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 will happen because it, it sounds like the constitution doesn't prepare for this situation you know we've seen some boards have dead heats i think we saw that in uganda and they basically had to have a, a legal opinion and a and i didn't I don't think it went to court but it definitely needed some lawyers fees to to revise the constitution or at least get a call as to to what they do because the votes don't change what what, what happens um especially if they're two new candidates um, as opposed to an incumbent being able to carry on. So, look, I think a Kawaja is still the best choice for global cricket. And I guess selfishly, you know, and although he'll be an independent chair, that also maintains or increases the, the emerging cricket vote on that on that board. But, you know, we've talked about it before. It's not like Kawaja comes in and suddenly makes it a bigger World Cup or goes to a FIFA funding model, but someone who can potentially bring those sort of warring factions together for the good of the global game is uh, gets my vote. So I know Greg Barkley is a very, very effective board member as well. Unassuming, not, not the loudest guy in the room, clever lawyer. You know, he's been on the board of New Zealand cricket for quite a while, chairman of New Zealand cricket. And like we mentioned, chairman of international rugby league as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think Shonak originally, one of our uh, friends and contributors, uh, originally brought this up. But you know, <laughs> being an executive uh, for another sport is is uh, yeah quite interesting. In you know, we've talked about the conflict of interest that uh, might exist when you've got a um, you know someone moving from one cricket board to the nominally independent chairmanship. Well, what happens when you've got someone um, who's uh, the chairman basically working for two competing sports? And I mean, I know. Rugby league isn't uh, necessarily competing a whole lot with cricket, but it is, um, you know, how can someone really dedicate themselves to this position and you know, put in all the, the time and the energy and whatnot? And if your job as the chairman of the ICC is to make cricket as big and profitable as possible, and your job as the chairman of International Rugby League is to do the same thing for a different sport, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel 100% comfortable about that. It's interesting, you know, he came in earlier, or basically just pre-COVID, and he was interviewed talking about what rugby league, um, as opposed to rugby union, for anyone out there in the cricketing world that don't know the difference between the two, that the nines version of rugby league down from the normal 13 people in the field would have a similar or similar potential to what T20 cricket would be. So it is interesting, funnily enough, seeing a sport with, more teams in its World Cup um, who has made some big moves to grow the game around changing eligibility criteria for World Cups and also looking at ways to, to grow. But yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? That if he's using some of the cricket ideas for, for rugby league, you know, is, is cricket going to be getting, getting the best outlook? But I guess you could have said the same thing about him joining the International Rugby League Board whilst he was still a director of and chair of, of New Zealand cricket. So, you know, Australia, you know, we've got the, uh, the chairman of of rugby leagues also the chairman of the racing you know turf racing so geez you think sort of in a lot of countries you know there's only one country in the world where leagues it's national sport we know that's that's png good trivia for everyone out there um although they've probably heard us say it 15 times on here so everyone would know that but um, i guess it's a challenger sport like cricket in, in in many places and he's spoken about you know finding places around the world especially in north america and canada 
California he um, named about focuses for rugby league. It's going to be interesting to see how that, that sort of outlook, that expansive outlook changes if he's sitting in the ICC seat. Well, I mean, if he brings in the uh, the Rugby League World Cup format for cricket, I, I could see that being pretty good, actually. It, it's quite an interesting format, actually, in the way that they've um, seeded the, the weaker teams into two smaller groups uh, from which one team progresses from each group. So you've got two out of the six you know, so-called weaker teams going through, whereas for the stronger sides, they've got two groups of four. So out of those, three are going through from each group to the next round. So basically, you've got your eight quarterfinalists, but from so it's it's just a way of filtering out the um, yeah the weaker teams, which is quite interesting without having a sort of patronising pre qualifier to to get them out before the main competition starts. So yeah, I, I think that's something that they could actually look at, and you know, having fourteen teams is well better than ten. Just trying to do some quick math here. Um, <laughs> it's a seventeen member ICC board, but. Manu Sone can't vote. So 16 can cast votes. Is that correct, Tim? Manu's a CEO and he sits ex officio. So he's he's not one of the 17. What you're looking at there is the fact that the chairman no longer sits on that board. So there's only... Uh, yeah, so there's only 16 directors. So there are 12 at the moment. So I don't know whether Imran Khawaja gets two votes, one as his <laughs> position as an, associ- as an associate director... And also vice chair, but that vice chair is a nominal position on the board, and one as as chair person uh, itself. So, whether they're talking about getting a two thirds majority of seventeen, and if Kawaja has two votes, uh, wouldn't it be great if all came down in his vote? I'm feeling like a Kevin Costner film. Like we've, we've talked before, we came on. We talked about you know the the growth of American cricket. We need someone to uh, make a movie about about building it from this diverse crowd and and taking the world on. But I think we need a, like a uh, draft day, but it would oh, be the ICC. <laughs> but it would be the ICC elections, and it just ends up with, you know, getting what we want. Imran Kawaja just sitting atop his Putney. Get Putney. <laughs> um, good crossover there from us. So yes, so seventeen votes, two third majority, but there might only be sixteen votes in the room. Twelve full members, three associates, one independent um, female director, the independent chair, who I don't think is sitting there, and a partridge in a pear tree. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah, and Tim Cutler, what is your subject on Mastermind? I can recite the board structures. Of... It's not The Simpsons seasons one to ten. Well, that would be seasons three and four, probably. I don't know. The other interesting thing would be, I'm just thinking about South Africa. What happens if ah, see, that's... things go pear-shaped in South Africa and they don't have a vote? Yeah. Did did the partridge in the pear tree lead you to saying pear shaped? So is that uh, probably? That the, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, that's another interesting one as well. The argument uh, for a unnamed um, journalist in inverted commas for Times of India um, did mention that South Africa's membership being a discussion point at the moment may dictate who they vote for because they may vote for the oh, yes. with the cohort that may look more well does cricket south africa want to remain an, a member you know or do they want to be suspended like it would appear zimbabwe cricket wanted to happen to try and get them out of their situation with the government so um that brings an, another layer of complexity uh, to, to it all um which looks like it's all going to be done by december but um yeah there's, there, yeah, there's so many variables. It's it's like a 
getting to the season finale of, of House of Cards or something. There's just so, so many of these political balls up in the air and no one really knows where they're going to land. And it, it's, I mean, it's a bit sad that we've spent half an hour talking about administration, but I find it fascinating. It could be a very important vote though. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, great to, you know, House of Cards didn't that end well. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, oh, and it just, I mean, this is one thing that has um, been bothering me since the female independent director was announced. Um, just, just since we're on the topic and getting things off our chest. <laughs> Well, colours the couch, Nick. <laughs> so, the, the couch. It's like you, I like it better when you guys have a guest on because you don't talk as much. <laughs> um, well, no, because um, Indra Nori, when she was uh, appointed, was the CEO of Pepsi, who at the time was a major sponsor of the ICC. So I found it quite interesting that they basically gave their sponsor a vote on the board. Obviously, she, she's not at Pepsi anymore and Pepsi's not a sponsor anymore. But, yeah, that that um, appointment was quite interesting. But her vote is behind Imran Khawaja. No, but it, it was, look, a strong, successful female in that position was, was great. But, yeah, it, it's a, a fair point as to the level of independence. It sounds like she's been amazing on the board, though, in terms of bringing conversations back that have gone off off track or at least focusing so well she get her on this podcast well yes as nick interrupts tim <laughs> yeah well <laughs> as tim said they're looking to get all of this sorted by the end of the year uh and yeah as we said before on top of all the other stuff that we're covering here at emerging cricket we'll keep an eye on that for you as well to Hong Kong, your old stomping ground, Tim. Cricket's back. They're training outdoors. The national men's team have started training outdoors again uh, in the wake of everything going on in these uncertain times. If I hear that one more time <laughs> from anyone else, then I'll probably you kill didn't... them. And I'm Drink. Yeah, exactly. The unprecedented drinking game. <laughs> uh, I'm guilty for doing it right now. But the Women's Premier League, it's just a two-team set up there. That's back as well. And on the men's side, there's action as well. Nick, you've been watching a little bit of that stream. What have you uh, What have you made of that? Yeah, it's pretty interesting, this Women's Premier League thing. It's The idea is to basically have a, a, an extra level between the women's club tournament and the national team. And they've done that pretty effectively. A lot of national team stars are divvied up across the two teams. Um, the Jade Jets were the winners on the day, beating the Bauhinia Stars. But one one person I was quite interested in was Pool Two or Pool Toe. Sorry, maybe you know how that's pronounced, Tim. But yeah, batted quite well for the Jets. Um, very solid. Stuck around. Scored fifty. Led them to a, a well and ultimately a, a winning total. And of course, Betty Chan, national team bowler, wrecked the uh, the Stars top order. And uh, Jasmine Eve Titmus gave some good support as well. Maybe you could tell us about a few of these players, Tim, if you if you know a bit about them. Pulto's played some played for Hong Kong for I've been in and out in the squad the sort of last last few years for Hong Kong Cricket Club. Um, Betty Chan, of course, great off spinner, uh, lots of wickets for for Hong Kong. But Jazz Titmus's interesting story came over to to coach for Hong Kong Cricket Club after being captain, I think, of, of Lancashire. Um, after a couple of years, left her coaching role and is now a recruiter and is very much in love um, and back playing cricket again, which is great news because Jazz is also qualified for, for Hong Kong as, and has made her T20I debut. Um, yeah, men's-wise as well, you know, new recruits, as again, a new arrival uh, for Hong Kong Cricket Club, Martin Kutsi, by all accounts, world beater, and I'm guessing Hong Kong's hoping he hangs around for 
number of years to, to get available, but at the moment it's just playing domestic stuff. Yeah, they bought, they beat Esan Khan's Diaspora and Little Saiwan. So Little Saiwan, great story. Don't have a ground, but they're the biggest club by by participants in Hong Kong, but was started by by spies, by the spooks many, many years ago in, in Hong Kong. All the, you know, government workers that, you know, had uh, faceless jobs. I work in import. Yeah, into exactly, exactly. That's I work in marine insurance and work in cricket in Hong Kong. That explains a lot. And as Khan, like the great, opens the bowling, opens the batting and captains Kowloon. Um, and, and they won as well. But it, I'll tell you what, it's great being able to watch this stuff on uh, being streamed after sort of all those, those years playing there. And, and there's a bit of bit of argy-bargy as well. I saw one uh, wicket and send-off from a former uh, national player of Hong Kong who's now training to become a pilot, given, giving someone a bit of a send-off and getting the old <laughs> lightsaber pointed at him as, as the batter departed. Oh, wicket keepers, eh? Uh, but yeah, and the national team... Back to training on Tuesday. Um, saw Trent Johnston posting some Instagram uh, videos there, uh, training at Mission Road, Tinkong Road Recreation Ground, of course, where the, the Blitz was held and the only accredited venue. So they had seven wicket sessions and fielding going on with uh, groups of four. Bez, I hope uh, I'm doing enough talking for you here while you're resting that, um, that little throat of yours. <laughs> Maybe you can do a bit more. Tim, <laughs> tell me about Esan Khan's batting because last time he played in Hong Kong, he smashed a century for Diaskwa and this time he's, he's, I think it was about 35 off 10 balls or something ridiculous. But he, I've never seen him really produce it for the national team. You know, what, what's going on? Is it just in his head or is it short of boundaries in Hong Kong or something else? Well, short boundaries in Hong Kong. I think we heard Anchi talk about that, the sort of 45 metre boundaries <laughs> in Hong, uh, Hong Kong cricket, cricket club and, you know, the challenge that brings as a spinner, but that's another conversation. I think he's probably someone that has struggled to find his level up from club cricket or when at least he's given that kind of ownership role um, up the order. I've, I've, I've thought about this a number of times thinking, you know, could he bat higher in, in that Hong Kong team? Um, because he bats so low, inevitably, you know, it's almost a free wicket if he bats higher. But the problem has been as the Hong Kong team has changed with certain players not being available or dropping out or moving away, they probably can't afford to take him out of the lower order because they need him as almost insurance down there to try and rebuild innings. But I just, yeah, find that I think he's someone that probably needs a bit of flair at the top of the innings. So who knows? We know Trent Johnson's listening here. Give, <laughs> uh, give Khan a go. But of course, um, now that Scott no longer plays, Scott McKechnie doesn't play for Hong Kong, it'll be fine. You know, they won't be running each other out and then having fights. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll... Essan's really good overall player. I think he's he's probably his cricket age might be a little bit below par. I mean, he's probably nudging forty now. And what he's brought to the team with the, with the, with the ball, I think Hong Kong would be a much worse worse place. But you never know; there might be potential there with him at the bat, especially as they bring in so many young Hong Kong developed kids through the system who can get a chance batting higher in the order. Having someone like that who has that experience at the top, who knows? Maybe that's an option. Sticking in Asia, and we've seen the Lanka Premier League and a couple, in fact, a few emerging players have been picked up in that competition, not only from associate members, but recent full members as well. Sunam Gautam, who we profiled on Emerging Cricket through his name in the ring, unfortunately didn't get picked up, but a few notable names that did. Paul Sterling of Ireland, Hazratul Azazai of Afghanistan, as well as Naveen Al-Haq. And Ravi Singh, the Canadian, loves bludgeoning everything. Nicole, I'll start with you there as a Canadian who's seen plenty of Ravi Singh. That's a great pickup and 
It looks like someone watched the T20 World Cup qualifier, which is uh, is good. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you'd, you'd think maybe they watched the games, all of the games leading up to the T20 World Cup qualifier, because he, he didn't quite produce it in the in the tournament. But even with a slightly lean patch uh, over those few games, he's uh, he hits a six off twelve percent of his deliveries in T20 cricket for Canada, which great stat. Uh, just for context, Andre Russell hits thirteen percent of his deliveries for six. And Chris Gale hits 10.8% of his deliveries for six. So it's a pretty good ratio. Um, obviously, it's a much smaller sample size than those two guys who, who are in basically every T20 league ever, <laughs> including this one for Russell. But yeah, Ravi also did a job in the Qatar T10 with the most sixes for his team, although that uh, tournament is a bit of a, um, well, it's under investigation for corruption, so we might not necessarily put too much stock in it. But yeah, I think Singh is the kind of guy that you want in T20 because he, he doesn't waste too much time, which is one of the big things in, in you know analytics and data these days is do you waste time you know trying to get in and, and whatever. He, you know, he either gets in and hits a bunch of sixes or he gets out. So I, I think he'll be a great pick. Yeah, someone who doesn't waste their time is Hazratul Azazai. Every time I've seen him bat, he's swung from the hip. Basically, every opportunity. 12% of his balls go for six, so that's about one every eight deliveries or so. So that's pretty handy. Phenomenal. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good to see Paul Sterling get picked up. And, and I think that one of the, not necessarily a complaint, because at this level and even at full member level, we saw him perform quite well against England as well. But I think one slight criticism we've had on Sterling is that if anything, he probably goes a little bit too hard. And when he actually builds himself into to his innings, he actually is much more effective. So you, you kind of want him to, to burn five or 10 deliveries at the start if it means that he gets going at the end. I know that's a little bit different to the modus operandi of the likes of Hazratula and... Ravi Singh, but I think in his situation that does work a little bit better. If anything, he goes too hard too early. But yeah, once he does get going, as as we've we've seen a lot, he's pretty difficult to stop. And he's done it at, at just about every level of the game. And he's got a good record in county cricket as well. And he's played in Nepal where the pitches are really slow in the Everest Premier League. So in terms of Sri Lanka and, and everything there, I don't think it'll be too foreign to him. I'm not sure how much cricket he's played in Sri Lanka at all, but he's played in very similar very similar conditions in franchise tournaments previously. So I'm really excited to see how he goes. Navin Al-Haq is an interesting one, having a, a brief little study on, on him and going back and watching some of that under-19 World Cup footage in, in 2018. A very front-on action, he gets that arm really high, which will be quite menacing. I don't know how he'll extract as much bounce in, in say Sri Lanka, but he pushes them through at probably 135 plus Ks. Um, it'd be interesting to see, to, to see how he goes, but again, just another Afghan player off the conveyor belt and, and, and thrown into franchise cricket. We, we've seen them everywhere. Unfortunately, Mohamed Nabi hasn't really been given much of a go in the IPL, but Tim, just to finish off here, you know, the Afghans in, in franchise cricket are, are everywhere and we've seen them in just about every league now. Yeah, especially the spinners and, you know, I, we talk about kind of picking an all-spin attack. You know, Afghanistan's going to be close to doing that in the T20i, I think, with their, with their stock. And I think they're probably more famous for their franchise cricketers. And I think that's the, the new wave of the, the new full members. Let's call them a newer nation than, than, than Ireland. You know, their, their rise since the early 2000s is, is 
you know, meteoric to say that the least could almost say it's unprecedented. Um, <laughs> the yeah, and you know, you talk about Muhammad Nabi. Jeez, I, I tell you what, we could. I think we said it a couple of weeks ago. We can make a pretty good team of players that that haven't got off the bench in the in this IPL. And I don't know what that tells me. Does that say it's that they should have another team or they shouldn't have so many overseas players? Because the fact is, they can afford to pay these overseas players to be there, I guess, and be part of it. But um, you know, are we seeing the best crop of? Indian players, or could there be other other ones that could make up another team? Because there are definitely enough good uh, international players out there, and you have got the likes of Mo Nabi, who's been so good for the Sunrisers, sitting on that on that bench. And I believe there might be a leg spinner from Nepal there, Daniel. I, I haven't heard you talk about it much. Um, again, why do you hate Sandy? You know, um, you know, two great uh, leg spinners, you know, T here and Lamachani, coming from the CPL, where they they I don't know if dominated is the right word, but on the, on the wickets there that were conducive to their style of bowling to to now be bench warmers um it's it's interesting but yeah to your point afghanistan of um their players you know kind of like we said new age cricketers they've cut their teeth on the on the global franchise circuit um but also which is good in the context of the west indies and the struggles they've had you know they've then been able to go and play for afghanistan they got them to a world cup and and what a story that was to get through that qualifier. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting as time goes on to see how their skills sort of focus and whether they become a very T20-oriented nation and if their 50-over cricket falls apart. But you know, we've got to remember as well, they play all three formats across Afghanistan in first-class cricket, um, still play a lot of red ball cricket. So they definitely seem to be striving to, to get better at test cricket, but we all know how much test cricket cost to put on and um, you know we've seen the stories of Ireland and, and I'm sure Afghanistan despite getting the help they've got from from India to be able to host over there it's still not still not cheap well yeah and you know Rashid Khan has a test match 10 week at all so I mean just from a spectator's point of view it's, it'd be a bit of a shame not to see guys like him uh, playing their trade in what I still think is the best format of the game uh, and you know just just going back to the point about Paul Sterling I've, I've dug up a stat from uh Tim Wigmore, one of our favourites, um, he points out in 71 ODIs until the end of 2016, Sterling averaged 32.9 with a strike rate of 92. But since the start of 2017, Sterling is averaging 42.7 at a strike rate of 80. Um, so basically he's gone down 10 points in his strike rate and gone up 10 points in his average. So he's scoring a lot more runs, been a lot more consistent for Ireland. And of course that stat came out just before he uh, smashed England uh, to all corners and helped Ireland beat them. So, yeah, I think that's quite interesting that you, you raised that about um, him being perhaps, you know, you could perhaps make the case that he was a bit irresponsible in the early part of his career and he's sort of maturing as a player and um, becoming that, that more reliable at the top of the order, um, you know, getting them off to a more reliable start. So, yeah. To wrap some news to finish up today, and first to Romania, who have taken out the Balkan Cup, defeating Bulgaria 4-1 at the Mara Vlasie. Marianne Gerasim also broke a world record by becoming the youngest player to play in a men's T20 international at 14 years and 6 days. He claimed figures of 1 for 22 off 3 overs in his second appearance of the series. And the ICC America's qualifiers has now been extended to include Argentina and Brazil. Elsewhere, Bhutan and Myanmar will be making their debut in Asian region qualifiers. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. Subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. 
For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.